in the mid-80s, after having done retreats for about 10 years, I felt the need for um, an opportunity to do more Dharma practice. And so I made a decision to go to Asia, where I could have the opportunity to practice for as long as I wanted to. And so I decided to go to Burma. I had never traveled much outside of New England, a little bit uh, throughout the States, but not much, never been to a foreign country. But I got on the plane in New York and I flew to Bangkok and then on to Rangoon and went to the meditation center there. And it was a culture shock. Um, The climate was the, the tropics, uh, the language was foreign, the food was foreign, uh, everything was unfamiliar. It was uh, uh, a very challenging situation for me. I had uh, quite a lot of fear and apprehension and uh, I just didn't know what to expect. It was unsettling. I felt anxious, fearful, but I knew why I was there and I was committed. So there's one memory I have of an experience uh, in this center that served to soften and to really melt this feeling of being a stranger in a foreign place. And at this meditation center where I was staying, Breakfast is served about 5.30, just as the sun is coming up, or just as it's getting light. Breakfast is served at 5.30, and there's a sitting uh, scheduled from about 4.30 to 5.30 for the hour before breakfast. And uh, I would go and sit in the hall for foreigners. And at the end of the sitting, I would uh, come out, and I would stand in the the, uh, shadows by my teacher Upandita's cabin and wait for the call from the dining room, which is a a big gong that sounded. And while I was standing there in the the darkened or the dawning light, uh, the Burmese who were at the meditation center would do their chanting at the end of their sitting. And up at the top of the hill, oh, a hundred yards away or so, there was a women's meditation hall uh, that would hold uh, up to about 1,500 women. And uh, they would begin their chanting, and they chant their refuges and the precepts, and then a little bit of loving-kindness, metta. And when the Burmese women chant, they are very energetic, and they're very have tremendous devotion and confidence in the Dharma. And they chant with a lot of enthusiasm. And they just start this chant. And it's not a very melodious, really, but you know, when you've got 1,500 people really putting their heart into a chant, it's really um, hair-raising. And they would start their chant. And then, you know, after they were into there for 30 seconds or so, another 
meditation hall full of women. And this was a, a, a two-story meditation hall, 500 in each floor. And uh, one floor would start their chant, and later the next floor would chat, start their chant. And so now you've got a couple thousand women chanting uh, the refuges and precepts. And then there was another uh, mo- uh, meditation center on the right-hand side of monks and Burmese men. And that would hold about 1,200 and they would start chanting, and there was another meditation hall down behind us, which would handle up to 2,500. And so sometimes you'd have three, four, five thousand people chanting with the most sincere uh, and open heart and devotion and energy, these refuges and precepts. And the refuges, you know, are the, the, the taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, the the truth, taking refuge in the Sangha, the community of people who practice. And it's an expression of uh, faith and uh, aspiration and renunciation all in one. And uh, I too felt that uh, this taking of refuge within myself. I felt this connection with the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And I realized that those Burmese men, women, monks, nuns, elders, youth, the whole range, had the same heart that I did, the same mind that I did, and that their commitment and their aspiration and their love was no different than mine. And in some ways, it served to melt that whole Uh, feeling of differentness, foreignness, being in a strange place. And I saw and felt then the the universal, uh, uh, the universality of Dharma practice. How timeless it is. Whether you lived at the time of the Buddha or you live in the 20th century and soon to be the 21st, What we do in living a life of the Dharma, living a life to come into greater alignment with the truth, is the same for all of us. This was a powerful, powerful experience for me. And so I want to speak a little bit tonight about the taking of the refuges because it's something that we do at the beginning of most retreats, chanting of the refuges and precepts as a way of um, kind of coming into a community with a, uh, uh, a connection, some having something to connect us all together, our aspiration, our intention in being here, our faith, our devotion. But often, at the beginning of a retreat, we take the refuges and precepts kind of out of some rote uh, habit or without much uh, understanding even of what the taking of the refuges and the precepts are. My teacher Upandita was and is, continues to be, um, a very uh, 
intelligent, educated teacher. And his goal is to really lead you to the personal understanding of the nature of mind and the nature of the liberated heart. And so he puts a lot of effort into explaining why we do what we do. We're not not just interested in cultivating some habits that we don't understand what's happening, or hocus-pocus, or mystical, magical something, but rather a really clear understanding of what we do and what's the intention behind it. Why do we do it? So, in the taking of the refuges and precepts, it's important that we understand what the refuges are. Traditionally, we take refuge in the Buddha first. The Buddha was a human being, not a celestial being, not a god, not superhuman, a human being, just like you and I, born on the face of this earth. Now, many of us know the story of the Buddha, um, a being who made a vow uh, to become an awakened teacher, and then throughout several uh, hundreds of lifetimes developed and perfected the qualities of heart necessary to be awake and to be an effective teacher. This is what a Buddha, a Bodhisattva does, trains their heart and mind to be awake and skillful in teaching or leading others to this wakefulness. However we understand the Buddha, enlightened, free, uh, wise, well, however we understand him, it's pretty obvious that the Buddha was an extraordinary being. Extraordinary. In developing the qualities of patience, generosity, renunciation, determination, energy, loving-kindness, wisdom, concentration, the paramis, the perfections, the purity of mind that's required of a Buddha. In our practice, it's important to know who the Buddha was, so that when we take refuge in the Buddha, we understand what we're taking refuge in. We can take refuge in the historical human being that lived 2,500 years ago. There was a person who became a Buddha 2,500 years ago, lived and died. We can take refuge in that person. We can also take refuge in the potential within us to awaken our own Buddha nature, if you will. Uh, The quality, the potential that we too can develop to become Buddha-like, awake. We also take refuge in the 
possibility of being awake, of just being present in our life more of the time. When we take refuge in the Buddha and we take refuge in our own potential to awaken, it doesn't mean that we deny our limitations or deny our current uh, deficiency. Because an important element of being awake is being able to acknowledge our strengths and our limitations to further develop our strength and to overcome our limitations. That recognition requires a tremendous diligence. We've grown up in our life, in our families, throughout school, throughout our adult years, uh, and we have really learned to live the way we are. And it's more or less uh, okay. But there's always room for improvement. There's parts of our life, there's areas of our life which are maybe problematic, a little difficult, a little unclear, uh, a source of stress, anxiety, or unhappiness. Living a life of the Dharma asks, can we turn our attention to these areas of our life, open to them, feel our way through them, and let go? That takes courage, tremendous courage, to even even think that this is something we, we might want to do. I thank you all for having that courage. It's an important part of recognizing you know, why you're here. Your aspiration in being here is to find that courage to look at those areas of your life that are not yet, um, we're not yet open to, we're not yet resolved in a way that leads to harmony within and harmony without. You know, there's a vast library of teachings of every spiritual and ethnic and tribal uh, tradition on the face of the earth that's available uh, probably in your local bookstore. And when you look at the vast range of teachings, and let's just even limit it to just Buddhist teachings, there's just shelf after shelf after shelf of stuff you could read, learn, study, practice. It gets a little bit bewildering. It gets a little bit confusing. It's a little bit overwhelming, really. Where do you start? And uh, which teacher for me? How do I know if I'm doing the right, best practice for me? The way I understand this vast array of teachers and teachings is 
that there isn't one that's right and the rest are wrong. It's that everyone offers a particular perspective, a particular teaching on some place that's possible to get stuck. And so you can take it as a kind of a flag. You know, every title, every teacher, every teaching, here's another place you can get stuck. And when you do, here's the teaching that's appropriate for it. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's not where you're, uh, not what you're uncovering right now. Maybe not what's useful to you right now. So we have to be uh, alert not to pick and choose, uh, confirm and condemn teachers and teachings, but just to see what do I resonate with now and practice that. If it no longer serves your purpose, if you no longer resonate with that teacher or teaching, you don't have to say it's wrong. You don't have to believe it's wrong. You just find what is now useful to you. In time, we'll probably cover it all. The Buddha was one who developed the courage to look as deep as the mind could go at the conditions of life, to open to this is the way it is, and to accept that this is the way it is, and to not cling to it and not to turn away from it out of fear, but to acknowledge this is the way it is. By doing that, the Buddha awoke to the tremendous amount of unhappiness, suffering, stress, anxiety that we beings live with. And it was out of his clear seeing and caring that he then decided to teach. The Buddha didn't get enlightened for himself only. The Buddha didn't become free or wake up just so that he could be free and awake, but so that he could help lead others to this experience, to this understanding. We too, when we practice, as we will this weekend, these six days, are not practicing for ourselves only. We do the practice, it's true, but everyone that we share our life with benefits. Everyone that we share our life with benefits from the work that we do on the cushion. To the extent that we come to understand ourselves, what makes our heart contract, what makes our heart open, we understand this about each other, about others in our life. And out of this understanding, we are led to uh, live more compassionately. When we uncover and learn how to let go of our own fear, anxiety, and pain, we don't want to cause that 
knowingly or unknowingly, in others. And so we take those actions, we speak those words that lead others away from that condition too. That's compassion in action. The Buddha was very compassionate in pointing out the behaviors, the activities, the understandings which lead to unhappiness. It's not pleasant sometimes, as you know, to have somebody point out your faults, whether they're very skillful and subtle at it or whether they're very um, out front about it. It's not pleasant. But think about it. Somebody with the courage to show you in as skillful a way as they can, this is what you're doing that's causing you to be unhappy. We should thank that person. We should really value the person that can point to our own limitations and faults, as difficult as it is for us to accept it. Because without that, we stay blinded, we stay ignorant, we stay unaware, locked into this endless repetitive cycle of doing the wrong thing and ending up uh, unhappy for it. So the Buddha, the one who had the courage, the fearlessness to look and to awaken, the compassion to care for the suffering of others. And the third quality of the Buddha that I find really amazing and the real heart of practice for all of us is after his awakening, when he was, uh, as, as I understand it, free of all forms of suffering, therefore happy from any perspective. That he didn't just kind of retreat off into some Himalayan cave and uh, live out his life in bliss. No. He hung around the village and uh, decided to teach others. And uh, he had to put up with a lot of hassles, if you read the, the, the text at the time of the Buddha. There were just all kinds of people endless questions, confusions, arguments, kings warring with each other, people accusing the Buddha of all kinds of uh, unskillful things. And he stayed there and patiently tried to show and point out through his own behavior and through his understanding to these people how not to suffer. What I mean to say is he walked his talk. He really made an effort to bring into the world his understanding of freedom and what leads to happiness. That's our challenge, too. Come on a retreat, open to what we can, go home, integrate it. The real work is not only sitting quietly with your eyes closed on the cushion, but it's 
taking your understanding home into work into our society to walk our talk when we take refuge in the Buddha we take refuge in the potential we have to awaken to care compassionately and to live an authentic life when we take refuge in the Buddha that's what we do secondly we take refuge in the Dharma the Dharma has three meanings that I want to point out the first the Dharma is the natural law of the way things are secondly the Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha and thirdly the Dharma is this moment's experience okay so we take refuge in the Dharma we take refuge in the unfolding of the natural cause and effect laws of the universe we don't try to say no no wait I don't want it to go that way I don't want gravity to work the way it does I don't want karma to work the way it does I don't want you know the seasons to be the way they are I want it to be my way no we say let me understand the natural laws of the way things are the natural unfolding of conditions let me bring my life into alignment with it now you know um, there's a natural law you know what natural law natural law of seeds you know the natural law of seeds says you take an apple seed you plant it you get an apple tree you don't get an orange tree right you don't get a papaya tree you don't get a banana tree you get an apple tree scientists can confirm that that's true but why does it have to be that way that's the natural law of seeds it's a law unto itself that's the way it works the natural law of seasons is in New England four seasons winter spring summer fall it happens year in year out nobody's making it happen it's the natural law the unfolding of this natural law of seasons the natural law of gravity throw something in the air most things return to earth that's the natural law of gravity okay there is a natural law governing the unfolding of the mind the unfolding of our heart our mind is a natural law there is a law that governs it it's not whimsical it's not haphazard it's not chaos it's not uh, kind of unknown it might be unknown to us if we haven't looked but when we have it pointed out to us we can begin to see how uh-huh you can see the patterns it's not a personal preference it's not a personal I want it I don't want it. it this is the way it is if you do this with the mind this will happen it's a law of karma 
when I first met Kamala, we spent some time in uh, New England, where I was born and raised. And when I walk through the New England forest, I see signs of deer all over the place. I see where the footprints are in the mud. I see the droppings, the scat. I see where they uh, rub their antlers on the on the trees and they run off, they tear off the bark and things. So when I walk through the forest, I know I'm walking in a place where there's a lot of deer. Kamala walks through the forest, she doesn't see a thing. She doesn't see any deer, she doesn't see any signs of deer. Until I started pointing out to her, see those tracks? See that scat? See that tree? See this? See oh, now, when we walk through the forest, she begins to see. She, she now also recognizes where there are deer and where there aren't. The Buddha was like that, pointing out the signs of happiness and unhappiness in our heart. If we've never looked and we've never had it pointed out, we don't see, we don't know. But there is a natural law. There is a way. There's, a, there's an, an understandable unfolding of the heart and the mind that will lead to happiness or unhappiness. If you know it, if you understand it. If it's pointed out and you look, you'll confirm it for yourself. Taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in this natural law of the unfolding of the mind. It may be hard to believe. We may not want to believe it. After all, things aren't unfolding like we want most of the time. And so, it's natural unfolding? I don't think so. Or I hope not, but it is. When it's pointed out, we can see it, and we can begin to uh, guide the unfolding of the heart, the unfolding of the mind. The way things are is a result of a vast interconnected web of conditions, some of which we know, some with roots far, far, far into the past, with results that will be experienced far into the future. This moment is not isolated from the past and the future. It's intricately interwoven. If we understand that, if we begin to see the conditions that are unfolding in this moment, we can see in which direction we're headed. First understanding of the Dharma is the natural unfolding of the law of the mind. The second meaning of the word Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. Have you ever listened to a Dharma talk and marveled at how clear, how accurate, how simple and precise the Buddha's understanding is or was? It, it, it's just amazing. Sometimes, to me, I get this glimpse of the vastness 
of the Buddha's understanding and the precision and the, the applicability to it in any moment that we want to look. Or have you ever looked at your own mind, your own heart, and wondered how in the world you're ever going to figure it out? Really, I mean, it's like how many years of therapy and workshops and courses and how many relationships do we have to go through before we're going to figure it out, right? Somebody already figured it out. The Buddha went through all this. He went through all that. Or the Bodhisattva went through it all, got to the end and became the Buddha. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. The Buddha's words are a direct pointing to the understanding we need to figure it out. Direct pointing. It's just right, right to the heart of the matter. If we can open to the words of the Buddha, if we can open to the teachings of the Buddha, we get this extraordinary map of the mind of the heart and how it evolves with understanding and guidance, with patience, with love to that place of freedom, happiness. We don't have to figure it out. It's all figured out. It's called the Dharma. The teaching of the Buddha is called the Dharma. Can we take refuge in the Dharma? Can we find, can we feel the Dharma as a refuge? Or is it like one of many teachings? It's not to make other teachings wrong. It's just to say, the Dharma is one teaching that points to the truth. Do we have faith in that? Can we aspire to have faith in the Dharma until we confirm it for ourselves? Or do we really not, not trust the Dharma? Maybe we don't trust the Buddha's words. Maybe we think, well, it's just, we'll see. Well, the Buddha said, that's a good attitude to have, actually. Come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko. Come and take a look. Listen to the Dharma. Sincerely try it. And then decide for yourself. This works or doesn't. For you. At that time. And if it doesn't work. Abandon it. Don't bother. That's what the Buddha said. Don't believe it. Just because spiritual teachers say it or because your parents believed it or because everybody else is believing it or doing it don't, or just because it's uh, written in old musty books don't, don't believe it but listen respectfully and really sincerely try it for yourself if it works do it have the courage then to live it if it doesn't work let it go He must have had a lot of confidence in his understanding of the Dharma. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in 
the teachings of the Buddha. Or maybe I should say, we aspire to have the faith to find refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. The third meaning of the word Dharma, the Dharma refers to every experience we have is a Dharma. You feel pain in the knee, that's Kaika Dukkha, the Dharma of physical suffering. You experience depression, that's mental dukkha, mental suffering. That's a dharma. You experience a sound, the coyotes calling just at the beginning of the talk. You hear that sound, that hearing is a dharma. Your excitement at hearing that is a dharma. Your bewilderment is a dharma. Your happiness is a dharma. Your sadness is a dharma. Everything that you experience is a dharma. What does it mean to take refuge in the dharma? It means take refuge in this moment. Just the way it is right now, can we take refuge in this? Just like this right now. Not looking for anything better, more sublime, more calm, more aware, more enlightened. No, just this right now. Can we be at ease and content with the way things are? You know, to find a refuge, what does that mean? To feel like you are in a place of great refuge, safety, security, Stability, love, acceptance, contentment, something like that. So, can we take refuge in the Dhamma? Can we take refuge in our experience that we're having right now? Whether we're restless, or sleepy, or bored, or excited, or tired. Can we take refuge in that? Well, that's what we'll aspire to with our practice, to be able to take refuge in each and every experience that we become aware of, that we have. So taking refuge in the Dharma is not, is not just a kind of a, a chant or a, a sing-song or kind of a, a rote uh, thing to do. It's an affirmation of an aspiration which is headed towards freedom, happiness, contentment, peace, peace of mind, peace of heart. The third refuge is refuge in the Sangha. Sangha means community. Traditionally, it means that community of enlightened beings. It also means this community here that's doing this retreat. The community in Durango or in the Southwest or the worldwide uh, 
community of beings who value the teachings of the Buddha or value the Dharma in practice. That's the Sangha. In the monastery, or in the meditation center where I was staying in Burma, every December, the second weekend of December, they have a festival. And it's called the Mahasi Festival. And Mahasi Sayadaw was the Burmese monk who mm, kind of began or, or started this meditation center where he wanted to teach or he allowed, was allowed to teach lay people, where this whole tradition of retreats like we're practicing here in the West was started by Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma. Prior to that time, if you wanted to get these teachings, if you wanted to practice these teachings, most likely you'd have to be a monk or a nun for life. Most likely. Not available. Just not available to lay people to hear the teachings and to practice them until 1947 when they opened this monastery, this meditation center for lay people to do two months practice each year. Okay. So they have the Mahasi festival to honor, to, to, to pay respects to this, this monk who has, has died now. And from all over Burma, the people who have practiced in this tradition come to Rangoon and there is uh, all of the elders, the elder monks, the elder nuns, uh, in this tradition, the teaching monks and nuns come. And there's about 400 monks and a couple hundred nuns and, you know, five or 6,000 supporters. And they come and they have about four or five days of, you know, like a Dharma party, something like a Dharma party. It's a festival. It's a real celebration of the Dharma and and uh, this teaching and the practice. And there are Dharma talks broadcast over loudspeakers in the monastery from 5 in the morning till 10 at night in Burmese. <laughs> what a place to practice. And <laughs> when monks do anything, they do it in terms, or in terms of seniority. Those who've been a monk the longest get to go first. Those who've been a monk the least number of years get to go last. So in this gathering of monks, the elders of this tradition, the teachers of this tradition, um, the 400 of them, they're the, the 400 eldest, uh, come to Rangoon. And so in the morning when that gong rings to call us to breakfast, one of the monks who runs the meditation center steps out into the pathway that leads to the dining room, and he says, 65 wasa. That means any monk who's been a monk for 65 years can go eat breakfast. And you, since you can't ordain before you're 20, that means they're at least 85 years old. So you might see one <laughs> hobble out of the shadows and get on the path and walk towards the dining room. And then he goes, 64 wasa. <laughs> And you might see another one, 63 wasa. And then you see one come out with a cane or two canes. Walk. 62 wasa. When he gets down to 50 wasa, you know, they're only 70 years old, then there'll be a couple come out each time. And they get down to 40 wasa, 30 wasa. For somebody who's only 50 years old, there might be a handful coming out, stepping out every time. And so 
keeps going down the list, down to um, ten wasa. They don't let Burmese monks with less than ten wasa come to this festival. There's no room for them. But I was a foreigner, and I was a monk, and when they called one wasa, (laughs) then I could go. (laughs) And when I step out on that path, and I start walking to, you know, up the hill towards uh, breakfast, I look ahead, and there's this long line of monks, just really slowly, mindfully walking up the hill, around the corner, into the mist, up around the corner, around the meditation hall, into the dining room. And I think, somewhere at the head of that line is the Buddha. And the Buddha woke up. He turned to the people next to him and he said, Do you see what I see? Look. Look in this way. Do you see what I see? And they did. And they too became free. Happy. At peace with himself. And they turned around to the people next to them and they said, Do you see what I see? Look in this way. And they too realized the truth that the Buddha realized. And they turned to the next person and the next person and the next person and it came down that line, all the way down that line, to Mahasi, to my teacher Upandita, to me. And initially, it felt like that was the end. It just came to me. And then I realized that it doesn't stop here. The Sangha doesn't stop here. Whoever I teach, whoever I share my experience with, do you see what I see? Do you see the possibility of freedom? Do you see the possibility of peace in your heart, in your mind, in your relationship? Look in this way. It's our responsibility as a generation of Dharma practitioners, as a Sangha, to preserve the teachings of the Buddha for our children, for the generations that follow us. If we don't do the work, it doesn't make the transition. We are the Sangha. We're all connected to the Buddha. And we're all connected to every suffering being that comes after us. Who wants, who needs, who wishes the opportunity to hear the teachings of liberation. When we take refuge in the Buddha, when we take refuge in the Dhamma, when we take refuge in the Sangha, we take refuge in all of those beings who have ever heard and have ever practiced and have ever realized to any degree the teachings of the Buddha. It is possible for every one of us in this room. It is possible to be free of all forms 
suffering, of all the causes of unhappiness. It's possible. And it takes practice. When I take refuge in the Sangha, I take refuge in you. Because you can do it. You can free your heart from any limitation. From all unhappiness. From all suffering. And you can share that knowledge, that experience, with everyone else in your life. So we begin this retreat by taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.